Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Amen. Everybody doing okay? I have a a vision. The vision is that uh, somewhere in the next couple of weeks, you know, the governor will say, you don't need to wear your mask anymore. And I realize that some of us will continue to wear masks, and that's good. For those of us who feel like we're done, I have a vision that we make that announcement in a room like this at a time like this, and then we all take off our masks and swing them over our heads. and toss them in the air. And then maybe we have a little fire. And we just burn things and I don't know. I'm sure someone would be asphyxiated and there would be a new round of rules because unruly church is burning masks in the sanctuary. I've realized uh, that I'm getting older. Yeah. Yeah, you don't know how to react to that news, do you? I don't know if I should say amen or what. And I'm not just getting, you know, older numerically. I'm getting older philosophically. And uh, I have the privilege of working with a lot of young leaders, a lot of young pastors. And I'm in all kinds of different things that they, uh, you know, that I'm supposed to show up for. I'm not sure what I do there. <laughs> I think I'm the old guy. That's honestly, you know, we need that demographic represented. Let's get that guy. And uh, there's a lot of great philosophy coming out about ministry and how you do it and what you ought to do and what you ought not do. And one of the things that get discussed a lot is that we're no longer in the business of attractional ministry. I don't know if you've heard that language before, but we're no longer in the business of attractional ministry. Attractional ministry is not good. We're going for depth. And I'm old. Because I always think, well, how do you get depth if nobody wants to come? I mean, if it's not attractional at some level, like, let's make it completely unappealing and then we can make people deep wherever they are because they're not here. (laughs) They're being attracted somewhere else. So I feel... I feel old in that sense, like, because uh, here's what I think. I think that if you slice it all up and you dice it all up and you put all the new spins on it, which, by the way, we ought to pay attention to, because the world changes. The same old things don't work over time. But underneath all of that, it seems to me that what matters is that we build meaningful relationships with one another and we love each other. And that if you ask me what it was about the early church that made it so unique and powerful, I would say this. It was a revolution in hospitality. And this sermon is called The Unclean Samaritan. It could have been called Unclean Hospitality. It's just that the unclean Samaritan practices an unclean hospitality. And of all things, Jesus tells the story about it and says, you know, you might want to rethink how you're looking at the world because it turns out the unclean Samaritan practicing an unclean hospitality might be the heart of the kingdom of God. It might be lodged in a place that you didn't expect. And it seems to me that the early church was a revolution in hospitality. It was the only place on earth people could go, the only place on earth that people could go where there was no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. 
The only place where there was an egalitarian kind of an environment, a, a place where everybody shared and had all things in common, where it didn't matter where you came from or what your credentials were or what your background was, they said, pull up a chair. We got stuff. <laughs> we got food. I mean, it seems to me that there's something incredibly profound about that and that it ought to matter. The biblical narrative suggests from the very beginning that the people of God, the kingdom of God, are strangers and aliens on earth, that we are the misfits, that those who follow after this king from another place have a different lifestyle and a different mentality and a different value and a different sort of culture that inhabits them to the point that they admit that they are strangers and aliens in this place. So that the writer of Hebrews, who's, you know, sort of summing up that whole argument, says, all these people, 11.13, were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on the earth. Now, here's the thing. That means that if you and I live in our culture and feel like things aren't going all that well, like things don't fit together all that well, like something's weird, like the government's not quite getting it right, like things ought to be different, we don't get too excited about that because we are not surprised by that. Because this was never our gig. We were living in it, but we weren't of it. And we're not all that shocked that the world's definition of fairness or the world's definition of justice or the world's definition of equality is not exactly the kingdom's definition of justice and fairness and equality. We're just not that surprised by it. And we don't get all that upset about it. Because we have been living in the biblical narrative for long enough to know that the Judeo-Christian tradition, these folks were always wandering around. They were constantly getting kicked out of decent places. Or maybe not so decent. They were constantly on their way to something. They were moving forward. They were going to the promised land. They were getting kicked out of the promised land. They were coming back to the promised land. They were wandering in the wilderness. They were passing through the fire. They were getting through the river. They were tearing down the walls. They were constantly in this pursuit and then, as if that's not crazy enough, God becomes tabernacled in human flesh and dwells among us. And guess what? He's an outsider. He's not accepted. He's not welcomed into the hierarchy. John 1.10, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And so Jesus carries this identity of stranger and alien, so much so that so much of his ministry becomes identified with the stranger and the alien and the outsider. He spends most of his time with people who would be considered on the outskirts of polite society. In fact, it is this inflammatory behavior that gets him in trouble with the power structure, with the hierarchy. Richard Beck writes these words in his book, Unclean. It could hardly be argued that hospitality, the welcoming of strangers, is the quintessential Christian practice. Welcoming sinners to table fellowship was a central distinctive and perhaps the most inflammatory aspect of Jesus' ministry and teaching. Further, the gospel writers often create an identity relationship between Jesus and strangers. This identification, God as the stranger, echoes the story told in Genesis 18. 
in which Abraham extends hospitality to three strangers collectively identified as the Lord. This story shaped the imagination of the early Christians as seen in the admonition of Hebrews 13.2, a reference to Genesis 18, not to forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. In the Gospels, for example, Matthew 25, Jesus explicitly identifies himself with a stranger. That's where he says, listen, I was hungry and you fed me. I was in prison and you visited me. I was a stranger and you took me in. And then the people will say, when did we see you naked and clothe you? Or a stranger and let you in, or in prison and visit you? Just as you've done it under the least of these brothers of mine. You've done it unto me. He identifies himself in those processes. Elsewhere in the gospel, welcoming children is considered to be an act of welcoming Jesus. The parable of the Good Samaritan, one of the clearest articulations of Jesus' ethic. It's also a story clearly about hospitality, the welcoming of strangers. The resurrection narratives also explore the theme. I've never thought about this before, but I love this. And it's not mine, it's Richard Beck's, but I'm stealing it, but I'm giving him credit. The resurrection stories become a story in which Jesus is a stranger. The most vivid of those stories is the one in which Jesus is walking with the two disciples on the road to to Emmaus. They're walking along... And Jesus is saying, hey, what's going on? And they're having a conversation, and they don't recognize Jesus. They don't recognize Him at all. This risen Lord with whom they've followed, they've seen, they've understood, they they witnessed the crucifixion, they were present in Jerusalem. Now they're walking along the road to Emmaus, and Jesus is walking along with them. He's unrecognized. And then they come to their home, finally, and they go in, and Jesus makes like He's going to go on, and they say, no, 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 come in. And so Jesus comes in, And they ask him to bless the food. When is he recognized? He's recognized in this moment of hospitality, in the breaking of the bread. And you just got to wonder. Well, we're not used to seeing him on the cross. We're not used to seeing him risen. We are used to seeing him at the table breaking the bread because he has extended this hospitality to us over and over and over. We recognize this moment because this is the moment in which he lived day after day, week after week, welcoming strangers to his table. That's how we got in this mess. That's how we got included. He asked us to come over one day. We were sinners. We were tax collectors. And he said, come on over. And he broke the bread. And when he broke the bread, we felt welcome. We felt like we belonged. And we came into this family in this way. So we might not have recognized the risen Christ, but we recognize the Christ who breaks the bread. And when you follow this narrative, when you get into this theme, then then you start to see, oh, well, the Passover meal. You could go back to the garden. In the garden, what are they doing? They're eating fruit. Pulling stuff off trees and having food. And the Passover meal becomes the symbol of deliverance. How do you celebrate the great works of God? You eat dinner at the table. Manna from heaven. The widow whose oil and flour never runs out. And into the New Testament, we move into this place where Jesus has the open table. There are always sinners and tax collectors and people of bad reputation being invited into this sacred space of hospitality, being welcomed in. This story of strangers being led by a person who is on the outside looking in, even though he created the world, welcoming and identifying with the people who felt broken and disenfranchised and pushed out of the purity circle. And finally, 
granting to his church the experience of the Eucharist and the meal at the table together. We identify together at this table in Jesus Christ. This powerful imagery of what it means for us to be the people of God. So when you stop and you begin to think about that, maybe we should talk for a moment about the need for connection. Back in 1985, a study was done, and this question was asked by sociologists. How many people in your circle would you feel comfortable sharing dark secrets, with with whom you'd feel comfortable sharing your dark secrets? How many people in your circle could you tell your story to? In 1985, uh, sociologists were shocked because the results were that most people felt like they had only three people with whom they could share some deep, intimate story of their life. That study was redone in 2004. You probably won't be shocked to know that by 2004, the average American said, I have one person in my circle with whom I could actually share my story. Now listen to this. But 25% of people in 2004 said, I have no one. One fourth. I have no one with whom. Now let me ask you this. Do you think it's coincidental that the health and vitality of the church has followed along that loss of hospitality, that as the culture has become more and more lonely, that there's supposed to be a place on the planet that continues to represent a kind of hospitality, a revolution in hospitality, a place where you can't find that kind of egalitarian system, fairness, justice, a place where there's no Jew or Greek, fill in the blank, slave or free, male or female, do you think that maybe the loss of hospitality, and let's be honest, some of us have been around a while. We've become very content with our circle. We're busy. Sometimes, you know, we do a lot of services here, so that's always interesting, because I have staff that feel like we have a long day on Sunday. Ha, <laughs> ha. No, when I was growing up, we had a long day on Sunday. (laughs) Do you remember? How many of you remember a long day on Sunday? We went early in the morning and we had opening exercises. You don't even know what that is. That's because you're not going to get enough church in the 17 hours that you're going to be in church. So let's add some at the beginning. So before you got to go to Sunday school, you had to go to opening exercises. What would you do in opening exercises? Same thing you did at every other time. You sang some songs and you listened to somebody talk. And if it was your birthday, you got to give an offering. (laughs) Nothing stranger or more alien than that. (laughs) And then you sang an anthem and we marched to Sunday school. I mean, we just, it was a big deal. We circled and we went out and we went to Sunday school. And we had Sunday school for an hour. And then every church had a bell. This church, I don't, you know, we tore it out at some point. But when I came here, we had a bell. Because you got a five-minute warning bell. Anybody here can testify that this is all true? I ain't making a bit of this up. No, but just me, me and Herb. All right. Well, then let us tell you about it. You got a five-minute warning bell, and then you got a double ring because now it's time for church. And then you all got out of Sunday school. And you all came to church, and then the pastor droned on, a lot like this. (laughs) 
And then what did you do? Either somebody came to your house for lunch or you went to somebody's house for lunch. And you had your favorites. You know, your mom would say to you on the way to church, oh, we're going over to so-and-so's for lunch today. Oh, yeah. She's a good cook. <laughs> she does dessert well. And then you went home and you had a power nap. Because at 4.30 you had to be back for choir practice. And then there was youth group. And then there was church. And church went an hour and a half on Sunday night because that was the evangelistic service. It went a long time. I got good sleep on Sunday night. <laughs> and then you went to somebody's house. And you hung out with people. And in every one of those transitions, you talked to people and you shook their hands and you caught up on how they were doing. And you listened to them and they listened to you. And you were deeply ingrained in one another's lives. And sometimes it was completely unhealthy. But it was also deeply connected. And is it any coincidence that the decline of the church is proportionate to the decline of connection and hospitality? Because the church has always been about a radical kind of hospitality. A radical kind of reaching and caring and loving and connecting. Emma Sapala in Psychology Today. I want to highlight that. This is not a religious publication. This is just a secular magazine about psychology. We all know the health, the basic of the... <laughs> I'll read it now. We all know the basics of health 101. Eat your veggies, go to the gym, and get proper rest. But how many of us know that social connection is as important? Social connection improves physical health and psychological well-being. One telling study showed that the lack of social connection is a greater detriment to health than obesity, smoking, and high blood pressure. On the flip side, strong social connection leads to a 50% increase in longevity. Want to live a long time? Connect. Be hospitable. Reach out. Brene Brown, professor at University of Houston, writes these words. A deep sense of love and belonging is an irresistible need of all people. We are biologically, cognitively, physically, and spiritually wired to love, to be loved, and to belong. When these needs are not met, we don't function as we were meant to. We break, we fall apart, we numb, we ache, we hurt others, and we get physically sick. Sapala, concluding her article, we are profoundly social creatures. We may think we want money, power, fame, beauty, eternal youth, or a new car, but at the root of most of these desires is a need to belong, to be accepted, to connect with others, to be loved. It just seems to me that we ought to be people who are paying attention to the needs of people to be loved and cared about. Of all the places, shouldn't this be the most hospitable, loving place on earth? Here's where it really gets weird. So Jesus comes into a world where the structure of the world and the structure of the Judeo-Christian tradition, the, Ju the Jewish tradition at this moment, is about purity circles. We label these people unclean. They're outside the circle. Don't associate. They might be unclean because of where they were born. They might be unclean because of what they believe. They might be unclean because of their practices. But all of those things make them unclean. We are keeping them out of the circle. And into that environment, into that reality, you have this moment in which the, the structure has declared these behaviors sinful. You, you can't associate with them. You can't go there. We see the interaction with Jesus. Now, here's where it gets weird because Jesus turns it upside down. Miroslav Volv in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, writes these words. In the Gospels, Jesus reframes the notion of sinfulness 
Rather than focusing on unclean people, Jesus focuses on the boundaries separating clean from unclean. These boundaries themselves were evil. The inherent difficulty with this reframing was that Jesus' notion of sin, exclusion, brought him into conflict with the Levitical purity codes, or at least how those codes were being interpreted. Holiness demands boundaries and quarantine. Jesus' ministry of the table fellowship was dismantling those boundaries and breaking the quarantine. But what Jesus was doing was not wholly unanticipated. The purity tradition had been problemized by Israel's prophets in their concern that the priestly tradition of holiness and sacrifice and purity was, in some fundamental way, missing the point. It's what Amos is talking about when he writes in 521, I hate and despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never failing stream. Hosea 6.6, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Back in the fall, we were in the middle of the pandemic. How many of you remember? (laughs) How many of you remember that you imagined when this all started back in March that we would never ever be in September and still be going through that chaos? And so we were. And I don't know if you remember uh, this too, but there was also a little thing going on called an election cycle. We were in September, you know, we were up up on... You guys all remember that? I know some of you have PTSD, so you've blocked it out of your memory. And so there's this reality that, uh, you know, uh, we decided, we felt led, in fact, we had had it on the books for a while, but we decided to do a series called Above All Kingdoms, because we recognized that it really wasn't about any of all of that. It was really about the kingdom of God. And in it, I shared a weekend in which I talked about it's a kingdom of compassion. I shared with you the story of the Good Samaritan. So I want to revisit that thought just for a moment this morning. So it seems to me that the first thing that's so significant about the story of the Good Samaritan is that Jesus told it. I mean, it just seems to me that if you were going to make up a story that, that you understand, that the Son of God, that God's character, tabernacle in human flesh, tells this story, makes up this story to tell. And the setting in which it is told is very significant. Let me read it to you, and then we'll highlight a couple of things uh, as we kind of think about it together. Luke 10. 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law? He replied. How do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers and they stripped him of his clothes and they beat him and went away and leaving, leaving him half dead. And a priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him and he went to him and he bandaged his wound and he poured oil and wine and then he put the man on his own donkey and he brought him to an inn and he took care of him and the next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper look after him and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have had which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers and the expert in the law said the one who showed him mercy and Jesus said go do likewise 
Just a couple of things to highlight. Number one, I think the whole setting is significant. So here's a guy who comes to Jesus and says, listen, I need to know the bottom line. I'm a part of the Levitical law. I'm a part of the Levitical structure. In fact, I'm a scribe. I'm a lawyer. I'm a, I'm a person who is deeply immersed in the process of the law. And here's what the law says. It says to love the Lord my God with all my heart and to love my neighbor as myself. But here's the deal. The purity circle to which I belong does not allow me to really love my neighbor as myself. It only allows me to love certain neighbors as myself. So what I'd like for you to do is I'd like for you to clear up who is my neighbor. Because if I'm going to love God and love my neighbor, then I'm going to need to know who my neighbor is. Because I know who my neighbor is not. <laughs> the purity circle to, whom I to which I belong has defined who my neighbor is not. And Jesus must have at this moment, just, he just must have gone, okay, you asked for it, buddy. <laughs> there was a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Well, we already know several things. We know it's a treacherous road. We know that that drop from Jerusalem on the mountaintop to Jericho down almost uh, below sea level, down by the Dead Sea. <laughs> it's about a 1,300-foot drop. It covers 20 miles. The road, the trail, was full of switchbacks. Jericho was one of the wealthiest cities on the planet in the first century. Uh, it, it introduced trade from east and west. It, it, it was, well, we've talked about all the ways in which it was wealthy. A lot of money. The amount of money carried between Jerusalem and Jericho was incredibly significant given all of the structure of the temple and the residing of many of the priests in Jericho. A lot of money on that road. And so a couple of things would have been happening in the story. Immediately, the crowd would have looked at that story and said, foolish man got what he deserved. He shouldn't have been carrying that kind of money on that terrible trail, on that switchback down from Jerusalem to Jericho. You ought to know better. You never travel by yourself on a road like that. It's his own fault. He's got nobody to blame but himself. And along came a priest who would be ceremonially unclean if he touched the corpse. And so because of the purity law, he said, I will pass by on the other side. We don't have any sort of dilemma in his conversation. It's a very brief. He passed by on the other side. And along came a Levite too. Levite would have had a little different restriction, but probably fear motivated the Levite because he knew that people were often staged as wounded people. And when someone stopped to help, then they were attacked. And so he's like, I'm not getting into that. And then along comes a Samaritan. Now, the Samaritan could be a Samaritan by birth, but he could also be a Samaritan by reputation. Jesus had the reputation for being a Samaritan. It's actually recorded in John's Gospel for us. The difference would be this. A Samaritan would be a Samaritan by birth, but one who would be labeled uh, by reputation would be one who was considered heretical. And we have good evidence that this guy was not a Samaritan because of a couple of things. One, he's in good standing with the innkeeper. A Samaritan would not have had that kind of reputation, not have been allowed because of the purity laws to be associated in that way. Number two, he has good credit. Take care of him, and when I come back, I'll pay you whatever I owe you. So what Jesus is saying is this is a man who is heretical in his belief structure. He doesn't abide by the purity rules of the Levitical law and Judaism. Now remember, Jesus is telling this story. <laughs> he could have told a different story, but he told this story. Who is my neighbor? And so as the story then unfolds, you have this really moment of, you know, who, who was a neighbor to the man who fell among thieves? Well, the one who showed him mercy. This should be how you relate to your world. You don't relate to your world like the priest. 
And so if for a moment I just, you know, I highlighted four things way back there in September. Let me mention them to you again. Here they are. What separates us? Well, number one, blame builds walls. If we think we can blame somebody, then we don't have to love them. Amen? It's our own fault. It's our own problem. And I don't know about you, but one of the things that's happened in these last few months together as people of God and the church of Jesus Christ is you would have thought that we all belong to each other, wouldn't you? But back when this pandemic hit and we went through this vicious election cycle, it was like somebody threw a hand grenade in the middle of the church. And let me tell you, people did not all run in the same direction. They ran in very different directions. And right now today, people are blaming other people. I got an email last week from a pastor of a church in the Midwest who said, we have weathered this storm and now that the President of the United States has said we don't have to wear masks anymore. It has exploded in our congregation. And there is vicious fighting going on among our people. And you just stop and you shake your head. Because why? Because one side's blaming the other and this side's blaming that and one party's blaming the other and we're just blaming and blaming. Like we don't need to love people that we blame. If they're different than us, if they think differently, if they see it differently, if they're not in our purity circle. But this is the church of Jesus Christ. We are strangers and aliens in this place. We love everybody. We love everybody. And so when Jesus asked the question, how do you read it? I read it this way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Listen. When you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, your purity circle is you and God. It's you and God. What do you want me to be? Who do you want me to be? How do you want me to live? What are you convicting me about? What are you teaching? We get into trouble when we take this loving the Lord our God purity circle and we start trying to figure out how to love our neighbor through this purity circle. But guess what? They got to have their own purity circle with God. They don't get to live in our purity circle because our purity circle is only our purity circle and then the Holy Spirit convicts folks now here's the thing the purity circles start to look a lot alike because they all serve and worship the same God and the same head of the church but my job my responsibility for purity is between me and God and then my responsibility to love my neighbor. So do you see now how the story's going? So a priest came along and said, can't do that. Would damage my purity circle. You need a different purity circle if loving somebody. But as long as I can blame somebody, I don't have to love them. Number two, a holiness of separation builds up walls. When I practice a belief that I have to live in such a way that I can't freely love people, then something has gone wrong in the gospel. Jesus is consistently breaking down the boundaries. The New Testament church was a church that was full of people who were being transformed by a revolution of hospitality. They had never been anywhere on the face of the planet where there was no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. Not ever. Not ever in history had they ever experienced a place like that. And when they walked into it once, they stayed. 
They stayed until the power of God and the Holy Spirit of God began to do miracles in the lives and transform people and, and, and make them different and cause them to give up things that didn't belong in the purity circle and in the identity circle, but it happened because they became, they became, they walked into these saving and redeeming encounters with Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Number three, fear builds up walls. Some of us lived through the Cold War. Well, parts of it. And I don't know if you remember, at the end of World War II, we had this big problem in the world, and that was there was a rise in communism. Anybody remember? Students of history, we all know. (laughs) Super excited. (laughs) We had this problem. We finished the war, and one of our allies was a country called Russia. And as the war was coming to an end, there was a great debate about how to check the power of this new superpower that was moving into the world. And out of it developed something called the domino theory. And the domino theory suggested that if communism was going to be kept in check, we had to watch every, because if the first domino fell, then all the other dominoes would fall and it wouldn't be long until everybody here in the United States would be communist. Everything old is new again. For that reason, we ended up in a war in Korea because the Chinese were moving into Korea and carrying communism. And so we said, well, that's the first domino to fall. We got to get up there and keep that domino from falling. So we went into the Korean War. And then we had a similar situation in Vietnam. Everybody, students of history, you all know. It's not a great mentality, this domino theory. It gets us into a lot of situations and circumstances that are inexplicable and illogical. I would just suggest to you that the church of Jesus Christ has been using the fear domino for a long time. Well, if we do this, if we allow that, if we see that, if we embrace that, that's just the first domino and many will fall. Listen, the culture is going to shift and move and change. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And our job is to love him with all of our heart and to live out his commands in our life and to love other people so that they can come into saving relationship which will also transform their lives. And if we mix up these two, if we forget to love people, if we forget that attractional community and hospitality is still one of the most basic fundamental needs of human beings, and here's the sad part, we've become content. We're okay with our circle of friends and our circle of family. We don't do much hospitality-wise anymore. We don't invite strangers into our homes. We we don't look around on Sunday morning. We're not walking around to see who looks odd or out of place or they're here for the first time. We don't know the names of the people around us. We don't know if they've been here or they've been gone. We just sort of exist in space because we're so busy and we're so overwhelmed and we're so caught up in our own story and our own life and our own stuff that we've forgotten about this. The gospel, the heart of the gospel is about being hospitable to strangers. It's about welcoming them to the table. And whether that's literal or it's, a, you know, you invite them over for dinner or it's that you take a moment and you get their name and you care about them and you seek this. I'm going to become the person. That someone in my world, someone in my circle would feel confident that they could tell me their story and I would understand and I would be compassionate and I would be, laughing, I would be uh, loving towards them and I would be welcoming to them. I got to be that kind of person because that is the fuel on which the kingdom of God runs. Community. Connection. We are the body of Christ, the unique thing in the world. There's nothing else like it. 
There's no other place to find connection and love and grace and acceptance except here. Why? Because we're not in charge of changing people. God is. And we're so confident that if we just connect people into a loving community, God's going to get a hold of them. And whatever needs to happen in their purity circle, He's going to work on it. I'm not a policeman. I'm not an enforcer. I'm a person that loves people. And I have confidence in the power of God to transform their lives. And they won't all look just like me. Thank God. (laughs) They'll look like their version of what God's intended them to be. Finally, the very last one we talked about is exclusiveness builds up walls. Sometimes we start to think that we're the tribe, we're it. You know, these folks that think and act, don't you do that? Sometimes you'll hear a story about a church and you'll go, well, who are they? Oh, yeah, they're not, they're not us. That's some of those charismatic people. They're just, they're just out there. Oh, they're Catholic. That's, that's not. We think like that. Well, they're Baptist. Well, they're Nazarene. Well, they're Church of Christ. And we somehow think our little tribe is the one that, you know, we're here because we feel like our little tribe's getting it right. And if we didn't learn anything else in this pandemic, it's this. Our little tribe is not really a tribe, is it? I mean, as long as we don't talk about stuff that we find controversial, then we're a tribe. But boy, I mean, (laughs) right now, we could have a conversation about these little things or about vaccinations. And everybody would be like, whoa, now let me give you some... You mean we don't all agree on all that? No. (laughs) No, we don't all agree on much of anything. Kale. We don't all agree on kale. (laughs) Most of us do. (laughs) And yet we form this exclusive attitude. Like it's us and them. But it isn't us and them. It's just us who've been saved by grace. And some other folks that need some grace. And we all got a whole lot of the same issues. And I don't know what's worse. Folks that have never been introduced to the grace of God are folks who've been doing the grace of God so long, they've become entrenched in their own self-righteousness. I don't know which is more damaging. I do believe this. You and I are called to be the unclean Samaritans and practice an unclean hospitality with arts, hearts and arms open to the people in our world that need love and connection and grace. As we come back to life, what will be different for you? What will change? This, this is the life of the church. This is what will dictate whether we grow or whether we don't. This is the life of the church. Not just this church, but the church of Jesus Christ. It's a big decision we have to make. What will we sacrifice to accomplish the vision of the kingdom of God on earth? God, would you help us? We need you. It's hard stuff. It's hard stuff. We've been thinking in the ways we think for a long time. And we do want identity and we do want purity and we do want righteousness and we do seek it. Would you remind us 
that you've called us into relationship as a party of one, to open our hearts to you, to pray with David, search me, O God, know my heart, see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. And as we finish that prayer, and as we seek that purity, then we turn our attention to love others as we love ourselves. I pray that it would be a mark of this community of faith, that we are the most loving place on the planet, that we take our time, that we slow down, that we stop rushing so much and moving so quickly, that we begin to take time to reopen. I, I know the world's not open yet, but as we prepare, that we become folks who reach out, who share hospitality, who extend the table of Jesus Christ and the practices of Jesus Christ to a big open table that includes lots of folks who need to be fed and need to be loved and need to be included. And remind us that they're not out there. They're in here too. Lonely people needing connection. May we be that body of Christ in every true sense. We pray it in Jesus' name. And everybody said together, Amen. Amen. Will you stand? Will you join us online as we respond to the word? Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.